Coming up in this episode, Jeff and I are going to be telling you about everything that we've been reading and watching recently. Welcome to episode 294 of the Big Gay Fiction Podcast, the show for avid readers and passionate fans of gay romance fiction. I'm Jeff Adams, and with me as always is my co-host and husband, Will Knaus. Hello, everyone. As always, the podcast is brought to you in part by our remarkable community on Patreon. If you'd like more information about the bonus content we offer our patrons, go to patreon.com slash biggayfictionpodcast. And this week, our patrons are going to receive the March bonus episode, which will include our ongoing discussion of the classic gay paranormal soap opera, Dante's Cove. Welcome back, Rainbow Romance readers. We are so glad that you could join us for another episode. Spring has sprung. A new season is upon us. There are flowers in bloom. The birds are chirping. And Jeff and I are going to be spending the majority of this episode telling you about all the things that we've been reading and watching from inside the comfort of our own home. But before we get to those reviews, we'd like to introduce you to another show that's part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Here's Sophie and Franny to tell you about Girls Like Us. Hey guys, I'm Franny. And I'm Sophie. And we're the hosts of Girls Like Us. On the Frolic Podcast Network, you can check us out every Monday asking the question, what does a degree in literature get you? With The Answer, a podcast about children's books. We cover The Click, Pretty Little Liars. And just random YA books sent to us by listeners. New episodes come out every Monday. Bye! So earlier this year, the new series from Russell T. Davies premiered in the UK, and here on the other side of the pond, it became available to us on HBO Max. It's called It's a Sin. It's a drama about a group of friends living in London in the 1980s during the AIDS pandemic. And if you haven't had a chance to watch it yet, it is a brutal and honest look at what it was like to live during those times. I thought it was remarkably well done. It's so good that I would personally place it in the echelon of works like Angels in America and The Normal Heart. I absolutely agree with that. I think this is a very interesting companion piece to both of those, especially because this gives us the British look on things. One of the things that stuck out to me in one of the early episodes here was that they were essentially brushing it off in London for a while. Oh, that's an American thing. It's happening over there. And then they figured out that it was actually happening pretty much everywhere. So that makes for an interesting way to kind of compare and contrast between the American-based plays and movies that have been made. And you're right. It's an extraordinary series, and it is brutal. There are light moments. There are funny moments. But to watch what happens to this core group of friends over a decade was quite quite something. And I'm glad we parsed it out over a few days and didn't binge watch all the episodes at one time. Another new series that also just happens to be on HBO Max is called Generation. And this show deals with what it's like being a teenager growing up in America at this specific point in time. It's funny. It's outrageous. It's dramatic. The first three episodes recently dropped. Jeff and I watched those. And I enjoyed them an awful lot. A majority of the core characters identify as queer. And while it deals with specific issues about what it's like to be growing up in 2021, it also deals with a lot of the classic themes and tropes that we have seen in teen-based shows from the past. 
Jeff and I are of a certain generation. <laughs> we're old. Our, our teen shows growing up were things like, you know, Degrassi Junior High, My So-Called Life, and the glossy soap opera shenanigans of the gang from 90210. If I had to compare this series to anything recently, it reminds me a lot of the UK series Skins. Mm-hmm. That was almost 20 years ago now. We're so old. (laughs) But I really enjoyed this. I think the cast is pretty phenomenal. And it's specifically described as a dramedy. So it walks that really awkward line between the ridiculous and sublime and the painful and dramatic, which is, you know, what being a teenager is all about. Yeah, I really like how in these first three episodes in particular, it really drifts back and forth between some super harsh reality and some more light and almost frivolous things. I really love the character of Chester. He is absolutely incredible. He plays on the water polo team. He is also very out and outspoken. In the first episode, he is sent to the guidance counselor because he's been dress coded because he is in a crop top and skinny jeans and whatnot. But then the whole school thing flips on its head in one of the next episodes because they're in an active shooter lockdown. And then we go through the drama that circulates around that. So it's really amazing. Your analogy to Skins, I think, is perfect because it's very much in your face, very honest. But there's also a lot of heart that runs through it at times, too. I I really like it, and I'm looking forward to seeing where this show goes in the upcoming episodes. So as Will mentioned, the first three episodes recently dropped. New episodes come out on Thursdays on HBO Max, and it looks like this particular season of the show was going to run eight episodes, so there's more to come there. So diving into books, I feel like I have really been on like a reading binge lately. I've been taking in so many things, and they're all so, so good. I'm excited to get to talk about them a little bit. And the first one I'm going to kick off with is Queen's Ransom by Layla Rain. I ate up Layla's original Fog City trilogy that came out in 2019, and I'm so happy she has returned to the Madigan family for two more installments. It kicks off with Queen's Ransom, which released earlier this month. And here we have Madigan's sister, Helena, as she goes after happiness with Celia, who just happens to be the sister of Helena's brother's fiance. Did you get that? Yes. Two Madigans are falling in love with two Perrys, just to, you know, make things complicated, but also to draw these two families even more close together. Queen's Ransom picks up a short time after A New Empire, which is where Hawes Madigan and Chris Perry got their HEA, and siblings Hawes, Helena, and Holt all got control of the family business, both the legit cold storage part of the business, as well as their shadier dealings, in which... Hawes really kind of remade the family business from what it had been for decades and decades. Of course, since we're dealing with the Madigans, life is not going to be easy going, even though they cleaned all that stuff up. So Helena's been away for a little while. She's making sure that the business is fully shored up in the aftermath of the big battle. And the first order of business upon her return is to take her motorcycle to her favorite mechanic, Celia. As they're discussing the bike and engaging in a bit of cute flirting, And kind of wondering to themselves if that's a really good idea or not, someone, of course, comes along and shoots up the repair shop. Who is it? Well, that's a good question. Is it somebody who doesn't approve of the new ruler of the Madigan family? Maybe it's a new gang looking for control of a certain piece of territory. Or it could be Celia's deadbeat sleazy ex-husband. One thing's for sure, Helen is going to get to the bottom of it, and her family is going to help her. There is so much great stuff going on in Queen's Ransom, 
and it's centered in a wonderful romance between Helena and Celia. They are flirty and sexy. Helena isn't scared off by the kids who are really adorable. Celia's kids could be in a Hallmark movie because they've got the adorable quotient down to a T. Helena is, however, worried about what it means for Celia to be in love with her, given her line of work as an attorney and assassin and part of a crime family. Celia, however, is not spooked by any of it uh, because she's seen firsthand how the Madigans take care of their own, including her brother, Chris. I really loved watching these women continually finding their way back to each other as their love goes beyond the flirting, beyond the making out when they're down in the gym at the family compound. The little things they do for the other side of the family, whether it's Helena kind of working with the kids or Celia helping out Holt with his baby daughter. It's all so, so perfect. And here's a small thing that really delighted me, which is almost a writerly thing, but maybe kind of not. Usually when you're reading a book and the characters get all the flutters, it's usually butterflies. And there's nothing wrong with butterflies. I think it's written in so many romance books. I know I've used the butterfly thing a lot in mine. Layla's using hummingbirds in this case. And that really conjured up some nice images and the feelings to me because hummingbirds are really delicate, but then you get that really, that rapid flutter of the wings and the way that they dart around and it really gave a whole different feeling to those jitters. And I really liked it. I mean, I kind of went gaga for this description. Uh, and I know it's tiny in the grand scheme of the book, but it really made the impact on me that it was being used. Now, of course, Layla's an ace at romantic suspense, and I ate up the mystery on who shot up the shop and why. It was elaborate and it was intriguing. I honestly can't wait to see how it kind of reverberates in the next book that's going to come out in May. And that's really all I'm going to say on the whodunit because I'm not going to give up any spoilers there except to say that it was so well done and well thought out like Layla always does. Now, the consistent thing that I've always loved in the Fog City books is the strong family bonds, and that extends to friends of the Madigans as well. Not only do they have each other's backs if anyone from the outside fucks around with them, but they take care of each other in every single way. The families together here, both the Madigans and Perrys, as they prepare for the wedding of Hawes and Chris. They're also watching over Holt, who seriously got hurt in the original trilogy as he plays single dad to his young daughter. And maybe he gets a relationship with police chief Brax in the long run, too. And we hopefully will get to see that play out beautifully in Silent Night that comes out in May. I highly recommend Queen's Ransom and the entire Fog City series. If you haven't read that original trilogy, you should definitely dive in from the beginning as it's all better when you get all of the context on the Madigans and what Helen has been up to to this point. You should just definitely add all of that to your TBR. It's so, so good. Well, good. I'm glad that you enjoyed that. The novella I want to talk about just happens to be by one of our favorite authors, Adriana Herrera. Her most recent release is called Caught Looking, and it's about Yariel. He is a superstar shortstop for the major leagues, and Atui. He is the team's interpreter, and they are in a panic at the beginning of this story. They worry that they've placed their decade-long friendship in jeopardy after spending one explosively passionate night together. I'm like, like, kapow. Fireworks, trains going into tunnels, the whole thing. It's like a big deal. Yari insists that it can't happen again, but Atui has different plans. They'll be headed to the Dominican Republic for a series of charity events, and it's during that time together that he's going to prove to Yariel that he's not quite as straight as everyone once thought. On the plane to the DR, it proves pretty easy to get Yariel hot under the collar, and they almost join the Mile High Club, but Yari pulls back. 
Atui knows that this is what they both want. It's what they both need. And since going on the offensive didn't work, the new plan is to make Yariel come to him. So, staying in the same suite at the resort where the team's fundraiser is going to be held, they can't quite seem to keep their hands off of each other for very long. But they are interrupted by Atui's father. They then spend the afternoon at the sports camp run by Yariel's sponsors, and later in the evening go to a black tie gala. It's later at an exclusive after-party that Atui proves to be very popular. Perhaps purposely provoking Yari's jealous streak will snap him out of it and get him to admit that they are meant to be. And he fumes as he watches from the sidelines. When he cannot take it any longer, he drags Atui back to their place. He has to have him or he'll die. I mean, these two <laughs> definitely do not lack passion and they do not do anything halfway. And they spend the next several chapters engaging in sex so intense that I believe it will set the digital pages of your e-reader on fire. Which really shouldn't come as a surprise because everything these two do is intense. The way they fight is intense and the way they fuck is intense. And so now, without a shadow of a doubt, they both know that they belong together now and always. And in an epilogue set a year later, they still can't keep their hands off of each other. And Yariel has a special Valentine's Day surprise for Hatui, one that'll assure their bright and happy future together. Now, as I mentioned, we are both big fans of Adriana Herrera's work, but this time I think she has truly outdone herself. Not only are the sex scenes crazy off the charts hot, but the deeply held passions that these two characters have for one another is evident on every single page and in every single moment that they have together. Yariel and Atui are loyal friends and intense lovers. There's that word intense again. And their chemistry is explosive. And I can't think of a better example of friends to lovers written so perfectly. So I feel if you're looking for a novella that packs a lot of emotional punch with a ton of sexual heat, then Caught Looking is what you should be reading. I absolutely second that. We don't often read the same books for the show. And you said, you must read this. You must, must, must read this. Go read this right now. <laughs> I know, I shoved it right in his face. <laughs> and I'm glad you did, because everything that you said there is 100% right. I love how Adriano worked in the novella format, because you're right. This book starts in the aftermath of sex. There's no meet cute. There's no setup. There's like, oh, he's so dreamy moments. Boom, we've had sex, and now we've got to deal with that. You don't even get to see the sex that happened. You just know that it did happen. But she picks it up, and she gives you all those other moments so you understand their history, and you understand where they are and where they're going, and that they really have to do this together. It was just brilliant. I loved every single minute of it. And I'm going to keep our sports thing going. As I talk about Power Plays and Straight A's by Eden Finley and Saxon James. Now, of course, hockey romance is one of my go-tos, and frankly, it's been a while since I've read one, and I'm so glad I picked this one up. It's been on my list for a while to dive into their CU hockey series, and in this case, Power Plays and Straight A's is the first in that series that actually came out last summer. Not only did it satisfy my desire for some hockey romance, but the jock nerd story ticked just another one of my favorite things right there. So Foster Grant, yes, he's unfortunately named after sunglasses, <laughs> um, and that does come up a, a couple of times in the book. Foster Grant gets instructions from his brother that are very clear. Look after my friend Zach, but don't hit on him. Now, Foster's always had a big thing for Zach and his cute nerdiness, but Foster's been focused more on hockey than crushing on someone. 
And that's even more important now that he's in his senior year and looking to make the leap into the big time. Now, Zach's coming to see you from their arch rival, Vermont, and he's pursuing his master's degree in psych. He also wants to prove that he can actually live on his own without the help from Seth, who is Foster's brother, who was essentially his roommate at Vermont, or anyone else for that matter, because Zach has some really overprotective parents. He knows he often focuses too much on his studies to the point that he loses track of time, he's got a hard time reading people, and that maybe he should allow himself more of a life than he actually does. Their first meeting on campus makes Zach bristle. He runs into Foster while he's exploring campus, and unfortunately this happens right after a bird is actually crapped on him. Now Foster's outgoing, happy-go-lucky style just doesn't sit well with Zach, who's just annoyed by the whole thing that just happened. They meet up again as Foster ends up in the sports psychology class that Zach is the TA for. It doesn't help that Zach doesn't understand anything about team sports, but his professor really wants him in the class and to teach the class to help push Zach outside of his comfort zone. Foster's offer to help Zach understand team sports and the psychology behind it is at first brushed off. But Zach eventually relents to the offer, and this becomes their first stop on a journey to really falling for each other. Eden and Saxon do such a wonderful job of showing the differences between the fun, boisterous, and driven Foster, and how Foster kind of balances all those elements in his life. And then there's the studious, quiet, but also similarly driven Zach. As Foster and Zach step more into each other's worlds, not only do sparks fly, but they find amazing ways to support each other as well, in some very large and some pretty small ways, too even risking what's most important to each of them, which for Foster is that chance at the NHL, and for Zach is to become a little more independent and to pursue and get his doctorate and master's degrees. The sweetness that permeates this book is the thing I loved most about it. While they have to figure out what a future looks like where Foster is hopefully somewhere in the NHL and Zach is working somewhere on his doctorate, they're both incredibly sweet in their romance. I love jocks who are both fierce in their sport, but also complete romantics too. Foster doesn't know initially how he got into being that romantic, but he does. And I absolutely loved his embracing of that part of himself. Zach's not so sure he's capable of being loved because his personality is so different and the journeys they're on is so different, but it just, it somehow just makes this wonderfully satisfying merging of these two guys. There is an angsty subplot in play, too, with the reason that Zach decided to switch schools for his master's, and that involves some bullying. Payback's a bit of a bitch, and while Foster didn't exactly approach the situation in the best way, I loved how it got taken care of in the book. And that whole thing about don't hit on my friend, explaining the relationship to Seth wasn't the easiest, and Seth didn't want Zach hurt after all, but Foster got it sorted out, and it was really some good uh, brotherly conversation that happened there. He also had to get through the first moment of actually bringing a boy home because he hadn't come out as bi really to anybody except Seth. I loved my first visit to CU Hockey and with Power Plays and Straight A's by Eden Finley and Saxon James. I look forward to exploring more books in the series. Book three, in fact, just recently came out. So if hockey romance with jocks and nerds is your thing, you definitely need to give this a try. So back in episode 292, we talked with author Joshua Ian. We got the chance to discuss some of his amazing gothic romances and some of the work that he does under a separate pen name. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that interview yet, we highly recommend you go check it out. I think the discussion was a lot of fun. So the novella I want to talk about right now is called Deja Vu. 
and it was written under his Lawrence Hill pen name. And it's about a guy named Alvin. He's the hospitality director at an upscale Atlanta hotel. And one afternoon, while chatting and gossiping with friends Denise and Devin, he learns that their latest celebrity check-in is R&B superstar T. Mills. Now, as a kid, Alvin knew T. as Tim, and they were best friends up until high school, when Alvin got dropped for a more popular group of jock friends. After receiving a special request from the penthouse suite, Alvin reluctantly goes up to find T preparing for some interviews and wearing nothing but a pair of briefs that show off everything that he has got to offer. Not that Alvin is interested, especially not when Tim doesn't even acknowledge him or their past together. Later that night, Alvin is busy putting out fires at a large wedding reception being held in the ballroom in certain cases quite literally, and the good-looking brother of the bride is chatting him up when the DJ starts spinning the T-Meal's classic Deja Vu. And hearing the song throws Alvin emotionally off-center. He's about to head home for the night when he gets another request from the frustratingly sexy VIP upstairs. Tim answers the door in nothing but a robe, and Alvin is frustrated by his obvious seduction techniques. Tim asks if the dessert he brought up is one of Alvin's own recipes because he really liked the food at Alvin's restaurant. You see, in the years since they've last seen each other, Alvin has gone to culinary school, opened his own place, and then when that didn't work out, he got a job at the hotel. It seems his old friend has been keeping tabs on him. They get to talking over chocolate cake and champagne, Tim trying to explain how being on the down low was never what he wanted, but it was his way of having both a career and a life. He always admired how Alvin was out in school and was jealous of how easy it seemed for him. It wasn't. And he also mentions how much he liked him back then. They reminisce about a long ago snow day when they danced their favorite song and shared their first kiss. Tim shows him the ring that he wears on a gold chain around his neck, a ring that Alvin made in shop class and gave to him. He's kept it because he's been in love with Alvin all this time. He couldn't tell him how he felt back then because he was too scared. He's stronger now, and he's come back to Atlanta over the holidays to show Alvin how he really feels, essentially how he's always felt. Everything Alvin has ever wanted is standing right in front of him. It's a second chance, and it's not going to be one he's going to pass up. And after sleeping together, they cuddle up close, and Tim whispers that he wrote Deja Vu about Alvin. It was just for him. Now in the morning, Alvin leaves the comfort of the suite to start his day, when his phone starts blowing up. In a tweet, T. Mills has spilled all of the tea, and he has come out to the world. Dating and loving someone as famous as Tim is sure to have his challenges, but I think deep down Alvin feels that this is the start of something really good, and their future is filled with nothing but possibilities. Ugh, this story. Oh, so good. I was really rooting for these two guys. Because when they're finally able to openly talk about their past and realize that the future they want is together, I mean, gosh, that's, you know, what swoony feel-good romance is all about. I thought the characterization in this novella was particularly strong, and I especially like the dialogue. The way that Tim and Alvin talk with each other has a really wonderful flow, a very natural rhythm. It's so good that I think this story would make a really amazing one-act play. I would love to see Tim and Alvin's story brought to life on stage. I would pay good money for that. So I think if Second Chances and Romance with a Superstar are some of your favorite tropes, then I suggest that you give Deja Vu a read. It's well worth it. It sounded so sweet. You really had me hooked when it turned out he wrote the song for him. Oh, it's so good. I mean, come on. <laughs> Writing a song for somebody? 
That's up there with like writing a poem for somebody. <laughs> now, if you're interested in learning more about the books and TV shows we've talked about in this episode, all you have to do is go to the show notes page for episode 294 at BigGayFictionPodcast.com. And I want to tell you that Eden Findlay and Saxon James's CU Hockey Series is available on Libro.fm, as is the original Fog City trilogy, and fingers crossed that Queen's Ransom joins those as well in the coming months. Of course, we love Libro.fm because it's a great way to pick up your favorite audiobooks while also supporting your local bookstore. Listeners of the Big Gay Fiction Podcast can get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of one. You can get all the details on that deal at biggayfictionpodcast.com slash Libro.fm. That's L-I-B-R-O-F-M. It's really easy to use their app, and we think you will love getting some of your audiobooks from Libro.fm. All right, I think that'll do it for this episode. Now, coming up on Thursday in episode 295, we have got more book reviews for you. Yeah, I'm excited to get to talk to everybody about the first two Vino and Veritas books that I've been eagerly awaiting. They're so good. Just spoiler on that. So, so good. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, please stay strong, be safe, and above all else, keep turning those pages and keep reading. Big Gay Fiction Podcast is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. You can find more shows you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Our original theme music is by Daryl Banner. Thank you.